Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, everybody, and welcome to the show, uh, this episode of DNP, uh, Delivering the Truth uh, for, and Exposing the Lies. My name is Paul Dayton. I am your host tonight. Diana will not be joining us uh, to begin the show, but although she may be calling in later. Uh, thank you all so much for tuning in. Uh, it's a privilege to be here, and I'm always grateful for any audience uh, that get, devotes their attention to me and to us. Today on the show, we're going to cover a variety of topics. Uh, the first thing I want to do, though, is begin by uh, mentioning uh, the passing of somebody who many of you may not know, although many of you are in New York State, uh, the passing away of one of my boyhood friends, a Western New York native named Aaron Lloyd, uh, after his bout with cancer. Uh, he lost that battle this week, and so I just want to uh, remember him well and um, remember him fondly and wish uh, condolences to his family. Uh, moving ahead, uh, my website is pauldayton.us, where you can hear uh, episodes of this show uh, archived, uh, along with uh, many other things. You can hear me on other shows as a guest. Uh, also, you can read my articles. You can check out my first book, Correcting Our Financial Miseducation, Raising the Bar for the Average, uh, excerpts of it there for free. And uh, we're going to be covering uh, a variety of topics tonight. On the agenda, we have socialized agriculture. We have college in the 21st century, smart money or not, uh, socialized medicine. And then we have the 401k plan and why it's the never going to retire account. So you can look forward to that uh, for the duration of this show. The um, first thing I want to mention here is that uh, the use of the word liberal, now this is mostly a, a political show, and when you have the word li liberal in use, sort of have to heads up, because if you're a person who are not um, immersed in the subject matter very often, you know, there are these sort of labels uh, that go as shorthand and they mean in practice a variety of, uh, you know, when you hear the word liberal, you might have five or ten things come to mind that are associated with that. When you're reading books, you see, the word liberal has meant historically and throughout the world, to uh, most of the world to this day, uh, the, uh, the uh, prioritization of individual civil liberty, that is, individual liberty. So that means characteristics that would exemplify uh, liberalism when you read a book uh, covering land outside the United States, particularly prior to the 20th century, the word liberal means an absence of central planning. It means no dictated wages, so no minimum wage, no, uh, no or very few labor unions, no corporate monopolies or socialism, right, when they say they're going to protect the consumer. Uh, from railroad collusion, so they create the Interstate Commerce Commission in the United States, which, uh, which established, codifies into law a monopoly amongst railroad people, <laughs> railroad owners, which has never, which is still in existence, uh, to this day, a century and a half later. Um, so an absence of guilds, absence of unions, absence of central authorities dictating prices, controlling things, uh, that's what liberal means. However, in the, 20, in the 20th century, the, uh, in America, the term was sort of uh, perverted 
into meaning precisely, precisely the opposite, right? When you think of liberal as it's used in American politics, you think of uh, heavy regulation, right? Heavy-handed central planning. The uh, individual liberty is no longer prioritized. In fact, prioritized. In fact, it's trampled upon in the name of central, a handful of people uh, centrally planning uh, everything. You know, so that means dictating wages, dictating prices for goods you can buy other than wages. Uh, you know, controlling access to products like medicine uh, and housing and so forth. So I just want to, as people are doing their reading uh, and doing their research, heads up for the word liberal. Because I'll tell you what, I was reading a book uh, during my research for my forthcoming project, Socialism, the Gift That Keeps on Taking, and it's about 19th century Germany. And the, pers- the, the author talks about all the liberal changes, and he goes on for Five or ten, five or seven pages, packed with just all these. How it was better for the masses, better for the worker, which was all true, but it's because they abolished the unions, they abolished the central planning, they abolished job quotas, they let the individual liberty reign, and as a result, the lowest people with the least money all started to live better. As a result, people were no longer barred from entry into jobs and industries. As a result, people voluntarily chose to flock, by the way, to cities and to factories, which purveyors of fiction claim oppresses and hurts the workers so badly. If it's so bad for them, why do they do it? Why do they all go there, get the higher wages, and fight tooth and nail to stay there? It's very interesting. So uh, the word liberal heads up for that. And uh, we'll begin here with a little bit of uh, socialized agriculture. So... Socialism in practice has really meant the uh, just being central planning. It's just called communism, wokernism, uh, American liberalism. These are all really in practice just synonyms. When we talk about the important variable, there's truly only one variable when uh, when we're speaking of financial systems and, and, and politics, and that is all the way at the very starting block. When the decision is made about the, the switch has two settings. The one setting is a loose hand from government, uh, heavy, heavy on individual liberty, right? People can make their own choices and be treated like grown-ups. That's one setting. The other setting is what's called socialism, communism, wokerism, American liberalism, which is precisely the opposite which is heavy-handed regulation, heavy dictation from concentrating the power into the hands of the few by decree, codifying monopolies into existence, and quashing individual liberty beneath, uh, beneath its, its boots in the name of uplifting the masses. That is truly the, important, the only important variable. All these other variables that are cited as you do your reading uh, and your research You'll notice that they'll mention variables like uh, natural resources, climate. Uh, they'll mention population composition, right? It has X amount of these varieties of skin tones or men and women or the age of the population, the young population and old population, et cetera. Uh, the, po- the domination of um, the, the, the preeminence of certain types, like that is, is it mostly an agricultural uh, society or is it an industrial society? All these other variables come and go. But the one variable that is key is, what, is who's in charge. 
is the individual in charge or or the handful of central planners in charge and that's really it when you when you set the the for 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 4000 years of recorded human history all over the world in in all these varying stages of uh technology in all these varying climates in all these varying uh composition of population the key is when the the hand tightens of government around the windpipe of the economy and the people through heavy regulation the masses suffer and especially the least moneyed people you get worse results on the whole and then it's the opposite obviously when people are free and are working for their own direct benefit and experience their own direct losses when things don't go their way that's when you see the best results for the society as a whole especially the least moneyed people let's talk about that in some specifics in the first place when we talk about um i just want to mention offhand people people mention uh, income inequality which just means i mean inequality for some some reason has sort of been uh uh made to mean through uh through branding i suppose from madison avenue as the old saying goes to mean some sort of nefarious uh robbery or cheating of somebody when in fact inequality just means unequal for example a person whose first day on the job and their first job ever is most likely going to have an unequal income to a person who has 20 years on the job uh and has you know great expertise and, and knowledge and may even in fact have investments so their money are also their money is earning money for them in addition to the money that they're saving for with with their physical labor their manual labor uh for them to be unequal to have an inequality of income is certainly not unjust in fact it makes the most sense when there's inequality of wealth again somebody who's worked their whole life is most likely to have is more likely to have an unequal amount of wealth to a person who's just starting out a person who's responsible and saves is most likely to have an unequal amount of wealth to somebody who's irresponsible and you know and splurges it all away on one woman song as soon as they get it uh so inequality is really not a bad thing in and of itself in fact it's often a good thing in fact this person's unequal so to me in their compensation is because and, and if 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 it's because what they're doing is more valuable than what I'm doing maybe it's more difficult maybe it's more uh, uh useful to people maybe it's more difficult to replace that is they as a worker are more difficult to replace because it's more difficult to do the job then that can motivate a person doing something yet less useful and so pays less to learn how to do something more useful and not only better better in themselves but better society and so forth so income inequality sort of or income equalization schemes have been attempted in real life with real people and real money and let's discuss uh, briefly what their actual outcomes have been study uh, of a man from the Hoover Institute named Edward Paul Lazier and he put it out in, in uh, 2020 and in this study uh, it covered nations from a panel of i think 20 or 30 different nations and the study found that the lowest and the highest income that is if you put them into class right so if we're looking imagine we're looking at our our paper here uh our graph or something and we have like the top class you know then you have like the, the second best class the middle the second worst and the lowest class we'll say the best the highest class of income and the lowest class of income 
tend to move in concert with one another. That is, when median national income rises by 1%, the income of the poorest also increases by about 1%, along with the, uh, the highest, while economic downturns hurt the poor more than the rich, which of course is true because poor people, people who are just starting out or who have been irresponsible and who are, or who are just not very skilled with money, uh, of course, have fewer resources, so they're living, you know, they have less cushion. Uh, so that's really not surprising. Now, in the, eight, the 1980s and 1990s, as we saw India and China begin splicing some incentives uh, for personal gain into their highly collectivized and centrally planned economy, the income gap between the top 10% and the bottom 10% of earners did, in fact, grow. In China, the rich earned 40 times as much as the poor, and the rich in India earned 20, 20 times as much as the poor. However, the bottom 10% in China, so during that time, five times as much at the end of the period than at the beginning, while the Indian poor were earning twice as much at the end than at the outset. Let's pause there. Because the highest earners, which by the way, may not have the same names on the report card, like if you could imagine tables at like a wedding reception or something, all right? The, the top earner uh, table might not have the same name, name placards uh, in front of the dinner plates, you know, uh, years later. And the same thing with the, the lowest uh, earning table, right? So there's not necessarily the same people in each one. People are changing tables up and down. But the, when the top income class or table earned so much more, right? They earned 40 times as much as the poor at the end of, of that period. Some people will just say, oh my God, it's such, a, it's such an outrage. Yet, when the fact that the poor earned five times as much than they had been, than they had been before, people with no resources, people with no portfolio, right? Are earning five times as much as they had been before, a person who actually cares about the well-being of the lowest, the lowest income, the lowest class financially, and the least moneyed people, must be pleased by this outcome. If they are not, it is a, it is a confession that they have no regard for the poor or the least moneyed at all. And in fact, their only priority is to satiate their envy of their betters, of their financial betters, the people who are earning the most. If, you're, if your concern is the poor and the poor are doing better, then when the poor do better, you must be pleased. If you're not happy with that, then that is an indication. You have to ask yourself, what do you actually care about then? What is actually, what's the actual goal? Do you want to help people who are, who are least moneyed or you just hate people who are better than you? Uh, so that's a very important thing to, uh, to do. Also, I would like to point out to everybody that while the uh, – well, the examples of countries or nations who had been backwards or not very well moneyed and have seen tremendous progress for the least moneyed, the most moneyed, and everybody uh, through a loose hand, through unregulated, deregulated, whatever you want to call it, so it's the key variable to uh, individual liberty. Those are plentiful. However, I can name zero instances on a large scale over the course of at least a couple of decades in which centrally planned economies have taken a poor economy, have taken poor people and made them anything other than poor people. I can name zero examples of that. 
And I challenge anybody out there to, uh, to come up with such an example if they can. I want to mention also that we, will, we do take calls on the show. If you want to call in just to listen uh, on your phone, or if you do want to speak, that's fine too. Uh, you can call in at 319-527-6208. That's 319-527-6208. If you wish to speak, uh, just press the number one. Well, it prompts you what to do. I think it's press the number one, and it'll let me know that you, have, uh, that you wish to speak on the air, and we'd be happy to have you. All right, so you are listening to D&P uh, with just Paul today, and uh, we are about to discuss socialized agriculture. All right, so let's take a look at this. Socialized agriculture. Let's talk about a couple of places. In the first place, we have an example in Cuba in which, so we know Castro took over, right, from a previous, from the prior regime. He comes in, he implements the central planning. Right. No longer will you have individual gain for doing a good job. Uh, no longer will you have individual pain for doing a bad job. Instead, you'll be told what to do or you'll get shot. And that's the way it is, which is, by the way, the most common outcome for central planning. It's, it's billed. The unsubstantiated claim is that if you turn all your rights over to this handful of people, then they will make your life better because they're wonderful, perfect angels. And, of course, in real life with real people and real money, once you turn your rights over to this handful of people, your rights are gone. It's too late, and they will do as they please. So let's take a look at what happened. Uh, the destruction of the once prosperous Cuban economy is both well-documented and tragic. During the agrarian reform period from 1959 to 70% of farmland became nationalized. Nationalized is just code, by the way, for confiscated by the handful who the handful who are in control of the government, right? Confiscated by a gang, by a monopoly, in the name of helping the masses escape from monopoly. Nationalized. The change in agricultural production in Cuba from the year before, prior to the nationalization, that is 1958, to the 63-64 season, so five years into this plan, is quite telling. Beef down 45%, pork down 84%, poultry down 36%, eggs down 40%, milk down 39%. Uh, we have malanga down 75%, potatoes down 50%. And this, is a, this is a tremendous, tremendous uh, decrease. In, uh, in production, not only for subsistence, but also for cashed crops. After the disastrous results of communism for their agricultural sector and therefore for their food supply, Cuba was able to avoid mass starvation, famine, because of a combination of a Soviet bailout and a rush of Cubans fleeing from the island, thereby reducing the number of mouths to feed. Weren't they so lucky that the supposed workers' paradise was such a, such a nightmare of a tyranny that people risked the shark-infested and Cuban government-controlled waters, by the way, to get out so that there would be fewer mouths to feed for the central planners with the ever-dwindling pie. Cuba had a comparable income to that of Puerto Rico prior to the 1950s revolution, but by the year 2000, Cuban GDP was a mere two-thirds of that of Puerto Rico. So that is, in half a century, they went from being number one to being just two-thirds of Puerto Rico. During that half century, the Cuban people surely realized that central planning was not working out. But their rights and freedoms were already gone. 
and they were condemned to a lifetime of choosing abject and hopeless poverty on the island or risking the, uh, the dangerous waters in order to escape the prison. Uh, so that happened there, and then we'll talk about the Soviets real quick, and then we'll go to China, and then we'll wrap up our socialized agriculture. Uh, so, by the way, when, you, when, we, when I mentioned that the Soviets had to bail out Cuba, right, this, this, is, this is indicative of what happened there, the shifting around of bankruptcy, sort of like playing whack-a-mole. You ever play that game at the arcade where the little things pop up and you have your, uh, your mallet and you bang it and you bop them on the head and it's coming up all over the place? That's what, I mean, it's just like the European Union during the last 20 years, isn't it? Just the shifting around of bankruptcies from one place to the other. Uh, steal from this person to cover that over there. It's a lot like the socialized, which we'll get to later, the socialized medicine in Canada, which is bankrupting them. Uh, and the so-called old age pension fund called Social Security, which is just a socialist Ponzi scheme, which is also bankrupting them. They have to steal from Peter to pay Paul. We'll get to that later more specifically. It's, it's, it's really the most common outcome. I'm not, I'm, I'm not taking just a handful of odd examples. It happens over and over and over again. As a matter of fact, uh, I have some, uh, some stuff coming up in my next book, which shows uh, tribes in Africa where they had, imagine in front of you, two perpendicular lines creating four boxes, right? People, and then plot, people in plot one, right, one, two, three, four. People in plot one, and the family was in plot two, and another family was in plot three, and another family was in plot four. They were assigned these plots by central planners. But they knew that they would not keep their same plot. They would be forced to rotate sort of arbitrarily and against their will at some point. They know it's coming. So what happened was they, were, they, had, no, they had no incentive to take care of the soil, uh, to rotate crops, to do anything like that, nor did they have any incentive to plant things that would take longer than a few months to, uh, to pay off because in five years that land wasn't going to be theirs. And so you saw a drastic reduction in production. However, once they nixed that law, right, they loosened the hands, they deregulated, they let, instead of having central planners dictate to the individuals what, what you're going to do and what's right for you, instead, central planners took a hike and let the individuals decide what was best for themselves, all of a sudden production skyrocketed. It's really not complicated. It happens over and over again. Now, the USSR implemented its first five-year plan from 1928 to 1932, bringing communism and collectivization into full force through central planning. Horses, which were vital to performing farm work in that era in, 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 in the USSR, declined in number by 47% during the five-year period, that is by nearly half. Incentive to care for the horses was greatly diminished as personal profit from doing, what, doing so was outlawed. So because you couldn't make any money from the horses, it didn't pay to take care of them. In the Central Asian portion of the USSR, cattle declined by 75%. That is, for every four cattle that existed before, now there was only one. Sheep declined by 90%. That is, for every 100 sheep there were before, now there were only 10 during this, those years, 1928 to 1932. The famine in the USSR during 1932 and 1933. And again, five years into the five-year plan, which is disastrous, with six million people dead of starvation in the communist territory. 
as I point out, and people are ramping up the COVID monster fiction again, it sounds like they're going to try to pull this nonsense some more. Now, whether or not they're, they're bio, what do you call it, bio-weaponing people, uh, infecting some people some places. We had a chemtrails guy on a few weeks ago on our show, which you can catch uh, on my website, pauldayton.us. Um, if you missed the show or you want to hear it again, like are they dumping chemicals to give people this? I don't know. Uh, but the point is, in 2020, one-tenth, of 1% of Americans were killed by the COVID monster, according to the CDC's official story. That is, out of 330 million people in the United States, which is the stated population of the United States in 2020 by the government itself, by the Census Bureau, 360,000 officially dead, killed by the COVID monster, according to the CDC, according to the government. If you get out your calculator and you pass middle school math, you know that's one-tenth of 1%. It's hardly anybody. More people, if you put on those silly masks to, quote, save lives, end quote, and you still vote for socialism, boy, you don't care about saving. Just like the person before doesn't care about helping the poor, they just care about hating the rich. If you behave that way and say you're going to try to save lives and vote for socialism, you don't care about saving lives. Socialism killed more people in the 20th century alone not including wars fought over socialism, like not including World War II. Socialism killed more people in the 20th century alone than all the diseases in recorded human history combined, including the COVID monster. For, I mean, six million people in this one USSR famine, one instance. Uh, for example, uh, people understandably did not want to bring children into the world to live under conditions such as this in the Ukraine. Births per year declined steadily during the implementation of this style of governance. From 1.2 million births per year in the 24 to 28 period to a decline to just 1 million from 1 million births a year from 29 to 31, then it drops again to 800,000 births in 32, reaching a trough of fewer than 600,000 births per year. That's half the rate, half the rate of Ukrainian births just prior to the five-year plan in 1933 and 1934. This is another cost of life that is um, more tricky to measure. Uh, it doesn't show up in the death tolls, but it, does, it, it, it is still reducing life. That is, people, number one, might not be healthy enough to, you know, try to have a pregnancy. And number two, they just might not want to bring a child into such a world. Uh, is really another important factor. And it is, in no, it is worth noting that Russia was a net exporter of grain during the famine of 1932 to 33, while its own people starved to death. Finally, before we get to our commercial here, we'll go to China in the 20th century. Uh, they implemented a five-year plan uh, from 1958 to 1962, dubbed as the Great Leap Forward by Mao Zedong, a key component stated that there would be no, quote, no wages for cash re or cash rewards for effort, end quote, on farms. So, again, they're taking away personal incentive from the individual, and the central planners are telling everybody what to do in the name of a dictatorship of the proletariat. Turn over all your rights to a handful, to a handful of people made powerful by decree in the name of avoiding a monopoly. <laughs> What a moron. What a moron one would have to be to fall for such a ruse. Uh, from 1957, the year before the plan was implemented, to 1962, 
per capita output of grain fell by 21%, aquatic products down 31%, while cotton, edible oil, and meat were each down 55%. 45 million Chinese died of starvation during the Great Chinese Famine of 1959 to 61. And just like the Ukraine, China saw a decline in birth rates during the unbearable agony of life in the country of this period. In this case, by a third, from 30 births per thousand in 1958 to 20 births per thousand in 1961. The communists did not merely have a rough start, which distorts a long-term success. As Yale economics professor Nick Lardy uh, found that the per capita grain output of China at the end of the 1970s was no better than it had been in the 1930s. Uh, so with that, we're going to end our quick uh, perusal of socialized agriculture. I thank everybody for joining me. Uh, I'm Paul Dayton here on the DNP show. We're going to play. Uh, we're going to play an ad here, and we'll be right back at you in a couple of minutes. Stay tuned. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever and whenever you're tuning in from, my fellow Liberty lovers. This is Amber S. from Living with Freedom Ministries, reminding you to tune in on Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Central, noon Pacific time, for the Living with Freedom show, where we'll embrace what living with freedom can look like physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and in everyday life. That's 2 p.m. Central, noon Pacific, here on Freedomizer Radio. Looking for something different? Looking for something fun? Join Dan every Monday on the Freedomizer Network, 9 to 10.30 Pacific, noon to 1.30 Eastern, for Common Sense with the educated redneck, Dan Ellison. The show about everything and nothing at all. During the pandemic, my lifestyle drastically changed. My income came to a screeching halt. You have to understand, I'm a hustler. I'm a legit entrepreneur. I sell things. I come in contact with people all the time. I have to stay safe. I didn't have a choice but to trust the vaccine. And if you live the type of lifestyle that I live, you out here in these streets, and you hustling, an entrepreneur like me, why not do it safely? So I want everybody to take this seriously. Take a shot at staying healthy. Get the vaccine. That's right. The Jokers and Jesters Comedy Tour is back on the road. We are currently promoting our second Amazon Prime special, Jokers and Jesters, the next special. We will be touring small towns across this great country of ours. So for our tour date, follow us on Facebook at Jokers and Jester Comedy Tour or at our website, jokersandjester.com. It's a great night of music, laughter, and magic. Don't miss us as we come to a small town near you. Okay, class, class, we want to talk about what we learned during the lockdown. The first question is, 
What did we learn during the quarantine, kids? Susie, that government overreach is real. What about you, Johnny? We went from home of the brave to home of the government slave. And you, Michael? We need to refresh the tree of liberty. What about you, Diane? So many sheep are willing to give up their rights because of a little fear. Very good, class. Okay, welcome back to the show. Uh, my name is Paul Dayton, and this is the DMP show, delivering the truth and exposing the lies. If you're just joining us, uh, I remind you that you can check out the sh- episodes of the show and other stuff that I have done on my website, pauldayton.us. That's P A U L, Dayton like Ohio, D A Y T O N dot us where you can find ep- archived episodes of this show. You can hear me on other shows. You can check out columns I've written, which are excerpts from my first book, Correcting Our Financial Miseducation. And um, it's not a bad website to check out. So having discussed a little bit of socialized agriculture, we're now going to move on to discuss college in the 21st century. Uh, so contemporary readers of this book in the United States will find it rather unremarkable this is what I've written in, in my in the introduction to my chapter, and then I'll read you some statistics. Contemporary uh, readers will find it rather unremarkable to have a point out to them that college is, on the whole, usually a poor business decision. The now decades-old familiar refrain of the graduates themselves who state that their degree is so utterly useless and entirely bereft of value that they feel as though they shouldn't have to pay for it are heard not only on the streets and in the workplace, but are also found in newspapers, television shows, and Internet articles as well as occasionally coming out of the mouths of some elected officials in the government. Yet, for others, their college degree seems to have directly opened up the door, leading to a career with a much greater income, and often security of income, which might have seemed a complete impossibility in absence of their diploma. Politicians, along with tabloid media workers who claim to be journalists, often muddy the waters when out of one side of their mouth they make statements to the effect of, college is such a poor choice, that it greatly sets back the majority of those who choose it, and it provides something so worthless that the recipients shouldn't have to pay for it. While, out of the other side of their mouth, come statements to the effect of, college is essential, and it's criminal to deprive anybody of this necessity. Let's take a closer look and decide which one is right or wrong. And I want to point out that victim politics, and that's sort of a uh, style that uh, has come into vogue, victim politics, loser politics. Uh, you're a loser, you're a victim just because of things you can't control, right? You have the color of your skin, means you can never go anywhere. Uh, your height, your eye color, uh, whether or not you have a college certificate, uh, I mean, they literally have something for everybody. If you want to have no respect for yourself and not enough respect for yourself to see what you can really do, not enough respect for other people, to, you know, treat them like an adult and actually tell them the truth and just claim perpetual victimhood so you can turn your rights and freedoms over to these people who say that they'll help you, I guess, as an excuse for your own lack of, uh, of, of being where you'd like to be. I mean, they have it for everybody. If you want to feel sorry for yourself, they'll let you do it. And college, this is very important. This covers literally 100% of people. Boo-hoo, you're a victim and oppressed because you do have a college certificate, right, Like because you, you have to pay for it now, while also simultaneously, boo-hoo, you're a victim and you're oppressed because you don't have a college certificate. 
you can never expect to get anywhere. You can never expect to get anywhere, according to the victim politics people, industry, the victim politics industry, because, because you do have a college certificate and it's holding you back, or because you don't have a college certificate and it's holding you back. They have no respect at all for their audience. And frankly, anybody who would be suckered by such a thing doesn't deserve to be respected. But the purpose of this show is to elevate people so that they will know better. So one thing that happens, I've found, is nobody really compares the yes college path on the one hand to the no college path on the other all the way through. We see these deceptive um, the deceptive sort of tables, and I include one in my first book. Uh, oh, by the way, the first, uh, the first 20 people who ask, who request a free book, all you have to do is go to my website, pauldayton.us. Every week we give out free books. The first 20 people, all, there's a little email B button you can click and just give me your address uh, and mention, you know, the show, mention that you want a book, and I'll be happy to mail you one free of charge. It will not be the worst mistake you ever made in your life. I will not sign you up. I'm not going to sell your information to anybody. You're not going to get an endless barrage of emails and regular mail and phone calls, junk phone calls. Nothing like that's going to happen. You'll get a book for free and that'll be it. Uh, so pauldayton.us, send me a request for a free book with your address or an address at, at which you'd like me to send it. I'll be happy to send it out to you. We love, uh, we love educating people. It's great for people who, uh, if you have kids or grandkids getting started, with their careers. The first half is personal finance, and the second half is how to not mess it up on election day. Uh, so that's uh, that's that. Now they have these charts, these, these these tables that get displayed, and you can find a similar one anywhere you want to. Any internet um, article about college, uh, any magazine article, they all, they all say the same thing, right? They show you this this table, and it says you know the, the level of degree, including no degree. Uh, and then it says, you know, your average weekly earnings, uh, your average rate of unemployment. And what it doesn't do is it doesn't say anything about net worth. It doesn't say anything about portfolio cash flow. It doesn't say anything about any of these other factors at all. It just shows you these sort of deceptive statistics. And so what I did uh, for us is I, I, I did a comparison of so what, what if of the yes college path and the no college path all the way through. So let's say somebody was gonna get a four-year degree and they actually did it in four years. But what if instead of, instead of doing that, somebody got the, the average, so they give you an average for a high school diploma, right? What if you just got those jobs, right? And still lived, quote, like a college student, end quote, like get, get a place with three or four other people, it's, you know, three or 400 bucks ahead, and get a regular job, and for your future, stockpile your money, just save your money. Well, what if we did that? Would that be a better way to secure one's future uh, than to do the same, do a similar thing, but to trade money you don't have for time you can never get back during your youngest years in which you're likely to be the most like physically productive, physically able to go do jobs that you're not going to want to have to do when you're 40 years old anymore, probably. Um, what if you did that? What if you actually? It, would it be better to actually have money and no college certificate, or to have no money and a bunch of debt but also a college certificate? Well, first of all, how much money would the person have, and what would that look like? So, in the book, I go on for. I mean, I show you the math. I spell the whole thing out for pages and pages. And the outcome is, if a person just works a quote regular job according to the same chart, 
according to the same chart where they tell you how much more the 10-year person makes and the six-year degree person makes and the four-year person and so on in terms of their average weekly income, right? That is gross income. They're not really making money, we don't know. That's just income. Are they turning a profit? We don't know. It's just income. Um, so when you do that, you do. I just took the mix of the high school diploma and then the college dropout because they were about the same income. I took the average of those. And how about if you just saved 20% of your income? for those four years or six years or 10 years or whatever the degree was. I stacked them all up on each other. In a four-year degree, which was the most common degree uh, to be earned in the United States based on the information I found, the difference between the yes college person and the no college person is over $60,000 at the end of four years. That is, the college person has, has, has nothing in their asset column, they just have this certificate whose only value for almost all of them is that you cannot buy, it's not an asset. You cannot sell it. You cannot borrow against it in almost all cases. Um, it's not, a, you, not an asset. It doesn't pay any interest. It's, it's not an asset. You just hang it on your wall. It's only possible value is you can go take it and beg somebody to hire you for a job working for them. They have that. And uh, the person who saved their money has $25,000. And all I had them do was buy, which, by the way, was the same as the average cost, or excuse me, was enough for a 10% down payment on the average cost of a U.S. home in the year 2020 when I, when I did, wrote this article. Uh, it was enough for 10% down when you usually only need 3 to 5% down for your first-time home purchase. So they bought, I had them buy an owner-occupied duplex, which closed the same day that the Yes College person after a four-year degree, graduated from college, and I had the Yes College person get a job with their degree that earned the average for that degree class on the very first day uh, of, of working, as opposed to the more likely outcome of starting lower and sort of working your way up. So in other words, I stacked the deck in favor of the Yes College path, and the outcome is the Yes College path loses overwhelmingly. They have the same average weekly income because when you have the owner-occupied duplex, the rental income is part of, obviously, the, the, the no-college person's income so that their regular job, you know, plus their rental income is the same as the four-year college person's income, weekly income. Yet, the yes college person has $25,000 and they have a piece of real estate in their portfolio and it produces income while the college person just has $35,000 worth of debt and is just getting started in the workforce. And that's true. I mean, that's just very simple math using the same statistics, the same statistics uh, in, these, in these charts so that it, it boggles me. It baffles me. The news, you know, they put these headlines out. Politicians are always, are always saying it too, so it's all over the place, how bad college is, how it's a horrible career move how the degrees are so worthless, not only can the person who has it not afford to pay for them, but they shouldn't have to pay for them. Yet, people in droves keep enrolling in college they, because they, for some fake pretend reason, seem to think that it's the key. Like, if you don't go to college, then you won't get anywhere. It's, it's bizarre to me. It really is. And so the, the, the answer, the outcome to that is, 
that, and by the way, the 2007-2008 graduating class in the United States, 53% of them were in loan deferment by the year 2012. That is, within five years, their loans were in deferment. The average medical, medical school debt in 2019 in the United States was $194,000. In 2015 in the United States, average debt for a master's degree was $51,000, and MBA average, the MBA was $42,000. The average four-year student who graduated on time in 2016 had $37,000 in, uh, in college debt on average with a monthly payment of $400 a month. This is real life. This is the reality. So once you have your certificate, you still have, to, you have your loans. And the question is, is it a good business decision? And what these people, what, is, what they are telling you is, on the whole, no, it isn't. Don't go just to go. Go with a purpose in mind, a stated purpose in mind. And ask yourself, once I have this certificate, will I be able to get a job with it at all, number one? And number two, if so, how much can I expect to earn? The next question is before you get started, before you commit to this time and money, is now would it be worth it to do that? And so in other words, if you're going, like for me, for me to go for like a history degree would be, would be insane, would be a terrible business decision. What, do you, what job are you going to get with a history degree? I love history. I like learning about it. It's valuable to, uh, to know the knowledge in life because you're not played for a fool. But I can't get, I mean, basically you're going to be a high school teacher. You're going to be a public school teacher if you can find a job as a public school teacher. And the amount of people who have, like, who are just scrambling to make something out of their, their worthless degree. It's like an English degree. Like, what are you going to do? Be a famous author? Probably not. Be a successful novelist? Almost nobody. So you're going to be a high school teacher, or you're going to have this worthless degree. And you're going to go, you know, whatever you're going to do, some, something else, and try to uh, overcome this mistake that you made voluntarily. Nobody forced the person into it. Nobody, uh, nobody, nobody twisted their arm. Nobody sold them a bill of goods. The fact that this stuff is not good for you is readily available. It's on the media. Politicians tell you uh, so that you have to go with a specific purpose in mind. Um, it can be useful. It can be valuable. I suspect that the outcome of people being more choosy about whether or not they go to, to college. In trade school, by the way, uh, some people will say, well, just go to trade school instead. If you had every single person who's enrolling in college just enroll in, like, electrician, become electricians and plumbers, I mean, what out, that's not going to solve the problem. What do you expect when you have an oversupply of plumbers and electricians in that case? How do you expect the price? What would you expect to, to, to be impact upon the price for such services, right? It's going to, it's going to drop drastically. So, again, go, go with the purpose in mind. Even if you, you know, go be, get a, learn how to be a plumber, you have to go actually make money with it. Other people are competing to be plumbers. Uh, you have to still handle your money responsibly and so forth. So that, that's just my word about college. This is the, re this is the reality of it. Uh, this is, these are the actual numbers. Um, and so this is what you should keep in mind for yourself, your children, your grandkids, uh, whoever it is. Uh, next up, we're going to talk about uh, the 401k plan and why it's the never going to retire account. But before I do that, I want to take a brief, uh, a brief break from that and talk about something that happened during the great failure of socialism, known commonly as the New Deal in the United States. The New Deal, as we all know, is being uh, 
we talk about it on the show a lot because it's invoked commonly by politicians in the United States. And it's not just, I mean, yes, currently it is, right, Green New Deal. I, I see Joe Biden promoting certain things. It's, it's the, uh, the biggest amount of spending on, on such and such. It's the New Deal uh, and things like that, sort of, it, which is bizarre. And it's not unique to today, though. I mean, if you see the, the uh, Kennedy-Nixon debates, which you can watch on, uh, on the Internet if you're bored, um, which I, I loathe listening to politicians speak in general, but um, once in a while I will watch an old debate just to sort of test myself. I'll say, okay, you know, what, what's actually going on in the country? Uh, are they lying? Is what they're saying true? And if not, why? Uh, and, but, and, and they, you know, the, Jack Kennedy, uh, he invokes it to be the biggest project since the, the Tennessee Valley Authority. And Dick Nixon just smiles and nods yes. Like they're, they're both right on board. Why? Because the New Deal, for some reason, has been and still is politically profitable. The New Deal featured a 15 to 20% unemployment rate for a decade. After five years of the New Deal, the unemployment in the United States was twice as bad as the international average amongst the, uh, the, the League of Nations uh, countries twice as bad as the rest of the world. So if somebody tells you, some liar or shyster comes to you and tells you, well, it was bad in the U.S., but it was bad everywhere. So it's, it's not what the U.S. did bad. Yes, it, the U.S. was bad. And plus, the U.S. was ahead of everybody when it began. So the U.S. did by far the worst. It was a failure of central planning. The Fed made, a, uh, made for a deflation of the currency. And the New Dealers, led by fascist Frank Roosevelt, uh, tightened their hand all over, tightened their hand on the windpipe of the economy as much as they could, trampled on the rights of the individuals, losing in the Supreme Court over and over again, offer after, often, after, especially during its first term. And this often, so just because something was struck down by the Supreme Court does not mean that people didn't suffer under its tyranny for months or years prior to that. Um, and of course, in the Roosevelt second term, the power mad tyrant, uh, began his inaugural address by threatening the Supreme Court with his court packing scheme and more or less intimidated them into, uh, well, basically not doing their job. I mean, their choice was, okay, we could either keep behaving like we're supposed to and standing up to the tyranny, uh, in, which pays, in, which, in which case they're going to double the size of the court, replace all the good guys, which was literally what Roosevelt was doing. He drew a line in the sand uh, in terms of age. The people who were behaving appropriately in defending the Constitution in the Supreme Court were all over that, that age limit. So his, his proposal was, everybody over this age is going to be replaced, and I'm going to handpick their replacement, if, or if I can get this legislation passed. <clears throat> so what they did, justices on the court, was to say, okay, well, what are our choices? Our choices are to either you know, let him do it, just keep, or we can sort of bend a little bit and see what we can do about, you know, letting as little bit, as few pucks pass the goalie as we can. It was a real horror show. And one of the things that happened during Roosevelt's first term, and if anybody, this is part of the, it's politically profitable, New Deal, and it should spell instant political suicide for anybody who attaches it to their legislation or to their campaign, but it does just the opposite. Excuse me, I'd have a drink of water there. <clears throat> it's tough. It's 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 tough when you don't have a co-host sometimes uh, when you have to do something like that. <laughs> but anyhow, yeah, Roosevelt and the New Dealers put 
everything into action the first day that Roosevelt took office in March of 33. People don't know anything about it. See, all the time people say, well, it takes a long time to get anything passed. It took a while. That was all Hoover stuff. It's not true at all. These are people just uh, displaying their tremendous wealth of ignorance on the subject when they behave this way. March of 33, a whole bunch of stuff went into effect, including the NRA, which is the National Recovery Administration. <coughs> the NRA was a horrible, horrible, um, well, administration, government bureau. It had 550 codes, 200 supplementary regulations, 11,000 administrations, administrative orders affecting 2.3 million and 16 million, 16 million employees. There were 1,400 NRA compliance officers at 54 state and branch offices. Fines of up to $500. I'm going to pause right there. The per capita GDP in the United States in 1936, I happen to know offhand, although I do have a chart in the book, uh, which people can, can refer to for every year. But the per capita GDP, so the GDP is the national income, Per capita means per person. So the national income divided by every mouth to feed, every back that needs clothes and so forth, worked out to $600 a year. That's $600 per person per year. And that was about, I mean, that's about right for the duration of the New Deal. So a $500 fine is serious. That's a humongous fine. Uh, imprisonment of up to six months. So $500 fines up to $500 and imprisonment of up to six months were dispensed for each violation to those who failed to fall in line with the central planning and governmental control of the economy. In one year, the NRA, that's the National Recovery Administration, generated 10,000 pages of new law dwarfing the 2,700 pages of federal statute laws on the books that existed, which going back to 1789. Let me pause there. From, 1700 and th from 1789 until 1932, there were 2,735, to be, to be exact, pages of federal state, federal law. During the New Deal, one bureau in, alone, in one year alone, generated four times as many pages worth of law. This is the tyranny of the New Deal. This is, this is the, remember we talked about the important variable, whether it's switched to uh, individual liberty or to central planners, you know, basically a mob, a gang, uh, telling everybody what to do. Well, once the gangster is in there, this is what they do. They start, they start oppressing you and, and, and pissing all over your rights, frankly. So we're going to talk about the Schechter brothers, which are the most famous uh, case uh, in the NRAs, uh, which was eventually declared unconstitutional. It was this case that uh, that really did it. Uh, but before we talk about the Schechters, we're just going to talk about some more damage done by the NRA. Uh, the NRA, on December 11th of 1933, went after 150 dry cleaners for their alleged involvement in discounting below the fixed price of the Washington cartel. Well, again, we're going to pause on that. We're going to point this out. The central planners, the gangsters, the communists, socialists, wokerness, American liberals, whatever you want to call them, they all behave the same way. In practice, they all behave the same way. The important difference between what happened in the 30s in the United States, what happened in the 30s in Germany and in the USSR, for example, was the structure of the government, was how 
was because of things like the Supreme Court and the Electoral College and how arduous it is to it is intentionally made for tyrants to enslave the masses. And they were and still Roosevelt was pretty successful. I mean, they doubled the, the uh, proportion of the nation's income consumed by government during their time. It went from it had been 10 percent. That is federal, state, and municipal spending total was 10% of GDP for you know, 150 years, we'll say, to make a round, to make a rough, a round number. Prior to the New Deal, then with the New Deal, it doubled from 10% to 20%. Now they were doubling; they're taking $20 out of every hundred earned by every person. Uh, and what's more, they were able to. Uh, well, they were able to abrogate choice for people in terms of their wages, particularly the least moneyed and the least skilled, by establishing minimum wages. Minimum wages had been struck down uh, as recently as the 1920s. Uh, thank mercifully. I mean, can you imagine? If you're not worth $10 an hour, that means if, if they set a minimum wage at $10 an hour, let's just pick a number, and you're not worth $10 an hour, that means you have been sentenced to a maximum wage of $0 per hour. That's what that means. So they say it's for the worker. I ask you, which worker is it for? Certainly not the lowest worker. I can promise you that. How does it help uplift somebody from poverty by outlawing them from working a job? I, I would like to know that. Uh, so anyway, lower prices for the consumers freely agreed to by merchants. I mean, who can think of a more heinous crime? Nonetheless, during a government-created depression, uh, nonetheless, the Roosevelt cartel needed to crack down on such behavior, and they did. In April of 1934, the fascist Roosevelt regime jailed a 49-year-old immigrant, Jacob Majed, for the offense of pressing a suit in exchange for 35 cents instead of the mandated 40 cents at his New Jersey shop. The immigrant, Mr. Majed, was far from alone in being jailed for such code violations. One wonders if he came to this country seeking that kind of oppressive tyranny from the government, or if he came here to flee it, yeah? Now, in June of 34, the tyranny continues. The Schechter brothers, who owned ALA Ella Schechter Poultry in Brooklyn, were indicted on 60 counts of code violation by a grand jury. Again, the offense, the offense that they're going after is, so people are broke, right? People are... The citizens are, 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 the poverty is running, you know, rampant and things like that. There's a national deflation problem. That means not enough money, not enough currency. And so what is, what, what is the uh, central planning government do in the name of helping the masses? They forbid the masses from being able to buy things from low, for lower prices, but that, by the way, the merchants are willfully willing to sell to them. It's bizarre. I'm here to help you, you know, save your money because you're so poor. So I'm going to artificially increase prices on you because I'm here to help you. Again, this is the New Deal. This is the New Dealers. This is real life with real people and real money. This is what actually happens, folks. If you run into some woker moron or if you are a woker moron, wake up. I mean, look it up for yourself. These statistics are from the New Dealers themselves. This is their own report card on themselves. I'm not digging them out of some archives and coming up with some new concoction of events at all. This is, these, are their own, these are their own doings. When we get back, we're going to learn about the Schechter brothers 
and their oppression. Uh, it's really funny. The Supreme Court basically just makes fun of Roosevelt openly, and it's a wonderful, wonderful story. We're going to play a couple commercials. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. We'll cover the Schechter brothers and more. So stay tuned to DNP, delivering the truth and exposing the lies. I'd like to call to order this secret conclave of America's media empires. We are here to come up with the next phony baloney crisis to put Americans back where they belong in dark rooms glued to their televisions too terrified to skip the commercials. Well, I think... NBC, you are here to listen and not speak. I think we should go with a good old-fashioned public health scare. Uh, yeah. A new disease. No one's immune. It's like the summer of the shark, except instead of a shark, it's an epidemic. And instead of summer, it's all the time. That is Now, I hate to be the guy who derails what everybody else loves. He loves being that guy. But, Janice, we do have standards. This can't be a made-up disease. The only moral thing to do is release a deadly virus into the general public. We do have something we've been holding on to, but it hasn't been tested. Get over here, NBC. Uh, well, well, we certainly believe in testing, but I... Oh, oh. Wow. Wow. Oh, oh, yeah. So, we've got our deadly disease. Now, we just have to blame it on something that's in every household, something that people are a little bit afraid of already. House cat flu is coming, people. The Center for Disease Disinformation predicts with some degree of probability that the house cat flu might spread in the following hypothetical outbreak pattern. So, Petter, beware. That warm body on your lap just might be ready to destroy your tender fiddles. Springfielders are advised to stay tuned for more information if they experience any of the following symptoms. Mild thirst, occasional hunger, tiredness at night. We talk a lot about the kingdom here, and we talk a lot about what most churches are afraid to talk about or don't even know to talk about which is what the first century church was really doing. But just talking about it is not enough. We encourage everybody to join us uh, in their local neighborhoods, in their local communities, to find out more about what they can do to seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Gather with others who are already starting this road or starting to turn around and do things differently. Join us on thelivingnetwork.org or at hisholychurch.org, go to the network links, or go to preparingyou.com, join the network there. It's all the same, and we'll try to hook you up with people in your local area. They will not be perfect. They don't walk on water. They are not necessarily saints, but they are talking about seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And join us on Facebook, facebook.com, His Holy Church, all one word. Join us there. We'll give you updates so you can start doing some studying and thinking about these things and start looking into these things for yourselves. But it's just not enough to sit and listen or to talk about or to say. You must become a doer of the Word. Hey everyone, come check out the Proof Negative Radio Show here on FreedomizerRadio.com. Monday through Thursday, 9 p.m. to midnight Eastern, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. on the Pacific Coast as we fight the New World Order and rock the health freedom world together.
Okay, everybody, welcome back to the show. You're listening to DNP, uh, Delivering the Truth and uh, Exposing the Lies. My name is Paul Dayton. I'm your host tonight. Diana is not with us, uh, but she'll be back next week. Uh, I'll be with you till 9 p.m. Eastern here. So we got about uh, 25 minutes left. And um, I just want to thank you all again for joining us, for tuning in. I thank everybody for listening, people calling in. None of them have pushed the... Uh, None of them have pushed the uh, the button indicating that they would like to come on and talk, which is all right with me. We're happy to have people. And I'm happy. You know, I see I, I run into people throughout the week. I know people are listening to the show on the podcast. And again, I'm just really grateful for everyone's attention um, and taking the time out of their day. I know that there's a lot of choices out there for people, and I'm flattered and grateful whenever they spend, uh, they choose to devote any of that time to uh, anything I'm doing. I'd like to remind people, they can go to pauldayton.us. That's P-A-U-L-D-A-Y-T-O-N dot U-S, uh, where they can check out episodes of this show, and they can get a free book if they want to. Well, I want my first book, Correcting Our Financial Miseducation. Uh, we give out about 10 books every week. So, um, yeah, shoot me an email and uh, give me your address. Let me know you want a book. I'll be happy to send you one free of charge. Again, it will not be the worst mistake you made in your life. I will not get a bunch of uh, junk mail uh, and emails and phone calls. I will not sell your information. I'll just send, send you a book for free, and that'll be it. All right, so we're going to finish up here with the story of the Schechter brothers during the Roosevelt tyranny, and then we're going to move along to uh, monopolized medicine. All right, so in June of 1934, the Schechter brothers, were induct- who owned a poultry company in Brooklyn, New York, were indicted on 60 counts of code violation by a grand jury. Some of the violations were that they provided more hours of employment than the code permitted. They paid less than the minimum wage to a willing employee instead of not providing a job at all. And they permitted customers to select the poultry of their choice instead of forcing them to take whatever was selected at random, as the code mandated. Let's pause there. So let's talk about how they violated the code. The code says that they artificially suppress and limit the amount of hours an employee can sell to their employer in the name of helping the masses, of helping the poor. So to help you, you need to earn money. The easiest way is to go, if you can get a job, is to go, you know, hours equals dollars, right? So what I'm going to do is tell you is artificially limit how many hours you can work and therefore artificially limit suppressing how many dollars you may earn in the name of helping you. Aren't I so helpful to the masses and the poor, Frank Roosevelt? <laughs> this, I mean, it's, it's true. <laughs> so that was the problem number one. They get, a willing person worked worked as many hours as they wanted to, but it was just the, over the amount uh, permitted by prescribed by the code. Uh, they did pay under minimum wage so they could give a person a job at all instead of limiting them to a maximum wage of zero, which we already discussed earlier in the show. And again, this this thing with the selection of the poultry. The person, so the code said that choosing a customer, okay, so the customer at the poultry shop cannot decide which cut of meat or which chicken they would like. That that's bad. That that oppresses the customer somehow. So instead of that, the customer must just get what they are given in the name of helping the customer. The Schechter brothers did not cooperate with this, and these were their horrible offenses. Yeah. These are the new dealers, folks. I'm not making it up. 
This is a real Supreme Court case. You can look at what you can go check out my book or read, read the articles. I mean, it's free. Look at the source notes section. You go on Amazon.com. They let you look inside for free. Look it up for yourself. Please, for the love of God, do look it up for yourself. Uh, but again, with more facts and reality, uh, this case was one of a slew to be prosecuted for political reasons by the Roosevelt administration, largely in an attempt to distract the public from the economic ineptitude of the New Deal. On November 1st, just prior to the midterm elections of that year, the four Schechter brothers, owners of the poultry shop, were convicted by a federal jury in Brooklyn. It was the first felony case of one under the NRA, that's the National Recovery Administration, NRA. And prosecutor Walter Rice described the guilty verdict glowingly as, quote, a sweeping victory of immense importance, end quote. These fascists were out of control. The Schechters were poor European immigrants who barely spoke English, just trying to run their chicken slaughterhouse and to run it kosher, to serve the public and earn a living. Kosher, in short, means incredibly pure and painstakingly clean. These were not men running an unsanitary operation, likely to poison anybody in the public. On the contrary, they were providing quality sustenance to the public in a manner which far exceeds anything that the government provided either at the time or since in terms of quality and efficiency. Remember, we discussed socialized agriculture, and we didn't even talk about the New Dealers. And their socialized agriculture, which I do cover, and I can maybe we'll talk about next week. So yeah, so again, uh, real people, individuals, capitalism, loose hand, whatever you want to call it, uh, is far superior to anything that central planners do, despite the outrageous and insulting promises of central planners. Motivated by fear of the heavy-handed government and what they might do to the sole business of the Schechters, the brothers attempted to comply with the ridiculous codes at first. Even about one inspector, Philip Alampi, quote, told the customer that he is full of shit and I am the code authority and I got a right to do anything I want. And if you don't like it, get out, end quote. That's a quote from a Supreme Court transcript, by, by the way. I'm sorry for the curse words. Uh, I should have warned you if you have children listening. I do apologize for that. Um, there, there's going to be another curse, I think, in here. Uh, but again, these are from Supreme Court testimony. This is what they said. I mean, this is what the guy said to him. This is what the fascist, tyrannical NRA uh, National Recovery Administration inspector told these citizens, these good citizens, uh, providing jobs, you know, selling food, doing everything better than the government ever could. Uh, then this guy comes in and tells them that. After a pattern of this type of behavior by Inspector, uh, inspector Alampi, the brothers told him to get lost because he was chasing away their customers and ruining their business. Alampi came back with the cops. The police said, quote, well, why don't you let him in? He's the code authority, end quote, to which Aaron Schechter replied, quote, I will not. I am not going to let anybody in here to ruin my business, end quote. Of the 60 counts with which the brothers were charged, uh, accused them of selling, one of the 60 counts, excuse me, accused them of selling two chickens which were unfit for sale or, quote, sick chickens, end quote. This false accusation made purely as a matter of political gamesmanship by the sleazy New Dealers, not only charged the men with breaking American law, but also of failing their religion and of being poor Jews. The brothers, common people without social status, whose meager means of livelihood were at risk of being taken from them by the overreaching government, and whose very dignity and religion were being accosted in the courtroom, 
had nothing to lose and came to fight with the gloves off. The Schechters were able to point out the absurdity of the code because of their profession. Despite being small businessmen who were paid less from their tax-paying business than the salaries of the taxpayer-funded agents who were accosting them. I'm going to say that again. I'm going to meditate on that briefly. These guys were grown men with real careers who own their own business. Yeah, they make their own lunch money. Then you have this dependent wage slave, punk, who works for the government. Uh, these guys make less money. So first of all, when you sue the government, you have to pay for both attorneys. That's one of the great uh, injustices and difficulties for a citizen because the citizen has to hire their own attorney out of their funds. And assuming they are a net taxpayer, they're, therefore they're also chipping in for the government's attorney. So the citizen must pay for both attorneys. This attorney was getting paid more than these guys made from their business. The, 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 the government attorney was the rich oppressor, <laughs> right? Uh, oppressing the, you know, I guess the proletarians, what they like to call these people. Uh, in fact, in real life with real people and real money, that is true. Uh, let's see here. Despite all of this, they appealed the Brooklyn verdict, which sentenced them to pay fines equal to years' worth of their income, as well as of serving jail time all the way, they appealed it all the way to the Supreme Court. Once the case reached the highest court in land, the judges found it impossible to take the outrageous and un-American legislation seriously. The attorney for the Schechters, Joseph Heller, explained to the court that under NRA, quote, the customer is not permitted to select the ones, meaning chickens, that he wants. He must put his hand in the coop when he buys from the slaughterhouse and take the first chicken that comes to his hand. He has to take that, end quote. The judges erupted with laughter. Justice George, Justice George Sutherland wondered aloud, quote, well, suppose, however, that all the chickens have gone over to the other end of the coop, end quote. More uproarious laughter ensued before the court unanimously ruled the NRA unconstitutional. So there's the story of tyranny from the New Deal. And again, just because it was ruled unconstitutional does not mean that people had to, did, did not suffer uh, under its tyranny uh, during, its, uh, during its time uh, time on the books. Next up, we are going to talk a little bit here about socialized medicine or monopolized medicine, uh, which is a topic of heavy, uh, heavy interest. It's a political football. The United States has been going the wrong way uh, for certain for some time, and it got exacerbated with the, uh, the Unaffordable Care Act, known commonly as Obamacare. Uh, the Supreme Court, of course, these are different judges a century later, nearly a century later, but that Supreme Court screwed up twice. They failed the first time to strike it down by sort of uh, declaring it a tax. They more or less punted, to use a sports analogy. So we're not, we're not actually going to decide this. Uh, and then the second time, they had a second crack at it, and again, they just they failed to strike it down. They just uh, it's a real it's a real uh, real problem. So whether it's called socialized or nationalized or monopolized, they're all terms which are synonymous, right? In the name of protecting your customer from a monopoly, which has never actually existed in real life with real people and real money. Corporate monopoly, business monopoly, historically, and I cover this. I mean, read you can again read my stuff. Uh, I'll cover it in my next book as well. I'm covering Rockefeller and a few other things. Nothing has ever actually come true. That this sort of uh, fixed, this apparition, this this phantom of 
corporate monopoly of, of, of all these individual businesses banding together as private people, private entities, uh, and, and oppressing the masses and subjecting them to a long-standing monopoly has never occurred ever. It is all, they have always been broken up every time. When, so in other words, people, there'll be a private collusion. Let's say there were five uh, healthcare providers or five farmers or five, uh, I don't know, somebody else, something, anything you want, anything you like. They, they, they will come together, railroads, right? They'll, they'll come together and they'll make a secret agreement to, uh, about rates, right? About increasing prices or restricting output or whatever it is. And it'll, it'll work, it'll, it'll last for weeks, sometimes months, but always, always. It is broken up when one of the members of the group goes behind the backs of the rest and betrays them by lowering their prices. It breaks up the monopoly. It helps the consumer. It sends prices going back down, and it's always naturally broken. That's the way it always occurs in real life with real people and real money. This fear of this uh, all-encompassing uh, business monopoly that is successfully uh, invoked by politicians is uh, is wholly unfounded in reality. The only monopolies that have ever lasted have always been government enabled. Have every time the state comes in and dictates the prices and prosecutes, just like we learned with the NRA, the National Recovery Administration, they dictated high prices and they'll prosecute you if you go under that. That does not help the consumer. That's not consumer protection. All that protects the consumer from is lower prices and more choices. It also protects consumers from becoming producers. That is, it forbids people from entering that field, right? It makes it a closed, a closed market, just like a labor union or a beggar's union, whatever you want to call it. It, prevent, it doesn't help the worker as a class if it forbids the overwhelming majority of that class from working at those jobs. It, prevent, it prevents people from entering the marketplace as a producer, as a seller, from moving up the ladder. So socialized means monopolized. In countries of varying uh, sizes and natural resources during varying time periods and in different parts of the world, the one constant is that the more socialized a country's medical and healthcare uh, industries become, the more quality suffers and scarcity increases. Many seem to regard a low nominal cost at acquisition as the sole objective, not realizing that the total cost to the citizens consists of the tax transfers from the treasury to the medical providers in addition to the cost of acquisition, as well as the cost of paying the bureaucrats through the regulator, while also forgetting that the cost may be higher in competitive cases because what one is receiving is of better quality or of increased convenience. Filet mignon costs more than ground beef for no other reason than because it is better, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Right? Overnight or same-day delivery often costs more than uh, it'll come in two weeks delivery, right? There's nothing wrong with that. You have the freedom to choose. You want them to do better, incentivize them with the money, and they'll do it for you. But again, when we have these so-called consumer protection laws, it forbids the person from having better, and they must take what they are given, just like we learned in the sector chase. And that you must take what you're given. You cannot be free to choose in the name of helping you to be more, more liberated. I mean, again, how pathetic would somebody have to be to fall for such a ruse? incredible. The United States has been slowly moving further and further into the direction of both increased regulation and socialization of healthcare and medicine. Healthcare being representative of access to physicians, surgeons, and diagnostic equipment, 
while medicine refers to drugs and medication. The Obamacare ACA legislation um, had a direct effect of merely transferring money into the treasury, uh, from the treasury, excuse me, into the accounts of the healthcare company, as opposed to reducing total costs. Right, because you have to actually pay for the bureau as well. Let's let's pretend for a minute that the government that, that, that this handful of uh, of gangsters, right, and the in the, the government, right, if the power has been concentrated into the hands of the few by decree through socialism uh, or whatever you want to call it. Let's just assume that these people somehow know what the real price would be if they had not interfered, right, and they have kept that price the same, which is of course absurd and unrealistic and would would most likely never occur. Even if they kept the price the same and just made different, basically enabled one person to use the government as a mechanism to steal from the pockets of their neighbors. Let's just say that was the case because that would not change total costs. That would mean total costs for the same. Even if you could do that, that's not, not a net increase in total cost. that is. The cost must be higher because you're paying the cost of the bureau. And these people are all working federal jobs or state jobs. These people are not working. They don't have they don't have three people working at Social Security, for example, on a volunteer basis. That's not the case. There are tens of thousands, maybe even and I think there are tens of thousands of of people working fat-paying government jobs, pensions, benefits. I mean, these two jobs. Once you add up the dollar value of all that stuff, are extremely lucrative very high paying. Uh, so therefore, we have to pay for the Bureau. So the cost must be increased. It could never actually reduce prices and increase an increase of uh, availability and quality. That outcome could never occur, and it never has. In 1962, the United States passed legislation introducing new regulations on the production of new drugs in the name of increasing consumer safety. That was their, that was the big uh, political word then, phrase, consumer safety, consumer protection. From 1962 to 1980, new drugs manufactured in the United States fell by 50% compared to pre-1962 levels. By 1978, the cost of developing a new drug and of getting it out for sale in the marketplace, as measured in inflation-adjusted dollars, had increased from $1 million in 25 months in the 1954 million dollars in eight years. So before it was $1 million in two years. Now it's, and then at the end of that period, approximately 15 years later, it was 50, it cost $54 million and took eight years to get a new drug out into the market legally. All the drugs and medicines kept out of the hands of consumers during these lengthy waiting periods certainly did not improve their safety. And in that way, the legislation failed to live up to, to its um, promise of consumer safety. What's more, increasing the cost of developing a legal drug for sale makes it, in effect, illegal to treat, to treat afflictions which are less common or rare. Ailments that do not <clears throat> impact enough people often enough to generate adequate sales to justify these high costs imposed by government in the name of helping the sick are left entirely ignored. No progress is made in medicine towards solving the problems unless it's stumbled into an act by accident while you're doing like other stuff. And that's the reality. So that's another huge impact, a huge negative consequence of so-called consumer protection and monopolization of healthcare. And I'm just going to run over a few things here. Uh, from 1946 to 1996 in the United States, beds per thousand declined 60%. That is, there was a, a reduction. There were only 60 hospital beds in existence 
1996, for every 100, there had been in 1946. Hospital personnel per bed occupied increased ninefold. Cost per patient day increased 40-fold, all figures adjusted for inflation. So when we ask ourselves the question, is this improving quality or reducing prices? Resounding, no. Uh, let's see here. What else have we got? Let's go to some other countries here. Oh, we talked about Obamacare. Beginning January 1st, 2014, the initial profitability uh, dropped of insurance companies dropped, followed by a substantial increase in premiums. So that is, at first it hurt the insurance companies, so they just raised prices on the customers, of course. Mandatory Medicaid expansion increased costs borne by the premium and taxpayers. From January 1st, 2014 to December 31st, 2017, health insurance stocks outperformed the S&P 500 by 106%. In Canada, uh, the taxes, of course, are high and uh, frankly outrageous. The single median wage, so they have so-called free or socialized universal health care. Uh, province sales taxes are between 11 and 15%. So they have a pro they call them provinces in Canada instead of states like in the United States. So imagine every state would have a sales tax of 11 to 15%. And some states in this country, by the way, have zero sales tax. Uh, single medium, median wage uh, earner pays 27% in federal taxes in Canada compared to 19% in the United States. Both are too high. Both are too high. But in Canada, it's basically 50% uh, more in federal taxation for a single median wage earner. A family who makes 168% of the median uh, wage, which was $90,000 in the year 2020 when I did this, when I did these numbers, pays 35% federal taxes in Canada compared to 24% in the United States. Both are too high, but you can see the so-called free health care is incredibly expensive. Canadians taxed uh, their GDP at a rate of 30, federally taxed 33% of GDP, where the U.S. federally taxed 24% of GDP during the same year. Of course, the U.S. tax is much higher than 24% of GDP. They're just isolating federal taxes there. Uh, now, what happens is they rob from the Social Security Fund to cover the, the socialized medicine. So Social Security in Canada is the same as it means in the United States. It's an old age pension fund or at least it's called an old age pension fund, but it's really just a Ponzi scheme, uh, started by politicians who said that individual citizens were too irresponsible to save their own money and live their own lives and, and manage their own portfolio, so that the state had to come in and do it for them and treat them like children. Yet the same politicians then went and bungled the money irresponsibly and lost it themselves. So that's very ironic and true. And as a result of that, uh, Canadians pay a higher Social Security tax, but get a smaller check. In 2020, when I did this, the, uh, the, the U.S. and Canadian dollars were roughly at par. 17% uh, Social Security tax in Canada compared to a 15% tax in the United States. Canadian average check is $984 compared to $1470 in the United States. So that is the United States check is about 50% more than the Canadian. Why? Because the United States, well, while the Ponzi scheme of Social Security is still bad, it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't have to go and pay for this other scam called, you know, free, so-called free, incredibly expensive health care. Uh, then we'll go over to, uh, let's see here, Britain, uh, beginning 1948, uh, when they entered the um, monopolized medicine field. Uh, we see a drastic uh, decline. We see fewer hospital beds in 1976 
than there were in 1948. Two-thirds of the beds in hospitals in 1978, or excuse me, in 1976, had been built prior to 1900 in Britain. So that is, there were an old, antiquated aging stuff uh, from 65, from 65 to 73 in Britain. The British Health Service uh, staff increased by 28%, administration up 51%, bed occupation rate was down 11%, with a steady waiting list of 600,000 people at all times. You couldn't pay more money. There was nothing you could do about it. You just had to wait, and, you're, you're, and sometimes they died. Sometimes you died on the waiting list. Uh, we're running out of time on the show. Hopefully you learned something useful uh, on this. Yeah, I see I have a caller. I don't have time to get to you because there's only a minute left on the show. I'm sorry. Uh, but thank you for listening to this episode of DNP. Uh, this is Paul Dayton flying solo, reminding you to check out pauldayton.us, uh, where you can hear episodes of this show, uh, as well as uh, me on other shows. You can also get a free copy of my first book, Correcting Our Financial Miseducation, Raising the Bar for the Average. Just send me an email. Let me know you'd like one and give me your address. Diana will be back with me next week. Uh, we'll be back to our sort of normal fun and games around here. I really do want to thank each and every one of you for taking time out of your day, no matter how many minutes of this episode you've listened to. I know you have a lot of choices out there. I know there's a lot of stuff. And I really do want to thank you for taking your time and uh, devoting Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.